But the truth is, when it comes to living a godly life, one of the things that's very important is to kind of know how to make good decisions. Does that come easy to you? Man, you just, every decision you make, it's like 100% right. You're just right on it. It's easy, and like you're coasting through living a godly life. It, it's, it's tough because um, the way God approaches life and the way we approach life are radically different. Number one, God is all-powerful, so there's nothing that he's ever going to come up against that he can't handle. That's not true for you and me. Have you ever felt a little overwhelmed by the challenges that you're facing? Yeah. And you are, let's admit it, powerless to do anything about it. The other thing that God's got going for him that we don't is he knows everything. Now, some of you are married to somebody who thinks that they do. Uh-oh. I heard you, Miss Karma. <laughs> How many of you think that your spouse thinks that he or she is married to somebody who knows it all? Let me put it that way. Uh, when we left off last week at the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 8, it ends with a trinity, but it's not a trinity of Father, Son, and Spirit. It's a trinity of ignorance. He says, you know what? We're wise and we're trying to be wise, but we don't know this. We can't figure this out, and there's no way that we're going to understand this. Three times in the closing two verses, we are reminded of it doesn't matter how smart you are, it doesn't matter what you got on your SAT or your GRE or what your cumulative GPA is, we are ignorant about a lot of things when it comes to life. And there is actual health in that if we can admit that and move on. So um, I am convening the first uh, meeting of the um, uh, Ignoramuses Anonymous, and I am your president. Congratulations, it's good to have you here today. If we can admit that and move on, we'll do better. Because if you're like most people, you probably worry a lot more than you should. Anybody in that boat? You a worrier? Some of you worry so much that if you're, you don't have anything to worry about, you're worried that you don't have anything to worry about. And it seems like we go through life worrying about stuff, if we can just be honest. We talked about this last week. Worrying about things that we have no control over. And you're worried. You can't do anything about it. And here's the challenge when you worry. It is impossible to be a worrier and to have a life full of joy at the same time. You can't do it. They, they, they occupy mutually exclusive pieces of property in your life. So in that, in that, that, that territory called your heart is either going to be joy or going to be worry, or going to be some admixture of the both. But they both can't live there in fullness the same way. It seems like people really go through life in one of two radically different ways. Um, you either are worried and anxious about everything, or you're so happy-go-lucky that you live like there's an endless supply of days. And I'm not going to, I'll worry about my retirement when I get 65. I'll worry about getting married when I'm married. I'll worry about kids when they get here. I'll worry about cancer when it hits me. I'll worry about, and so we don't want to live like the proverbial ostrich with our heads stuck in the sand, but we don't want to be warriors either. And so today, the book of Ecclesiastes in, in chapter 9 verses 1 through 12 is going to give us some really hard um, facts for pursuing a life of wisdom. Uh, I'll assume that everybody here wants to live a life of wisdom. The very first step in that is submitting your life to Jesus Christ. 
saying he's the king, I'm not the king, I want to do things by uh, his book. But you're going to hear some things today that you have heard before, okay? If you're working consecutively through the book of Ecclesiastes, there are going to be some things that he says here today that you have heard before. There's a, there's a fancy term for that. It's called repetition. And um, let me ask a question. Have you ever, have you ever had to repeat yourself to a child? I'm not asking if it's your child. I'm just asking a child, any child. Have you ever needed to repeat yourself to a child? This is yes. This is why, Lord. Why do you have to repeat yourself to a child? Maybe your spouse. Um, because they don't hear everything the first time. They don't absorb it all the first time. So Solomon <coughs> takes advantage of a teaching tool called repetition because we haven't gotten everything out of what he's had to say. So today, my, my challenge to you is not to tune out because of familiarity. Your familiarity may keep you from getting the deeper truth that Solomon is really trying to get at. But we'll see three really simple points today uh, that are simple, but they're not, they're not simple. They're hard. And so if we're going to pursue a life of wisdom, he begins this morning by telling us a life of wisdom requires us to stare down death. To stare down death. Man, doesn't that bless your soul this morning? Let's, uh, let's sing a hymn, pass a plate, and we'll be done. I mean, what a crazy way to start off a sermon. But this is, this is what Ecclesiastes does in verses 1 through 6. It talks about staring down death and seeing it as an enemy, but also gaining wisdom from that. Listen to what he says in verse 1 of chapter 9. <clears throat> Indeed, I took all of this to heart, meaning chapter 8. I took it all to heart, and I explained it all. The righteous, the wise, and their works are in God's hands. And that is a, that is a beautiful um, statement of faith. Our, our life, our works are in God's hands. We, we, are, we are cared for. And so when life is difficult and when you are confused and when you are hurt and you feel crushed by your circumstances, your circumstances are not sovereign. God is. And you might scratch your head a little bit and go, all right, why did God allow this to happen? But that doesn't mitigate His sovereignty. God keeps us in his hands. And so our life is in our hands. People, then he kind of takes a turn here, people don't know whether to expect love or hate. Everything lies ahead of them. He's making a statement here that our life is in God's hands, but we don't know whether to expect love or hate as we go through life. What he's saying in this introductory verse is that life is so crazy that our circumstances don't seem to indicate that there's any privilege for being God's kid. You catch that? Our life is in God's hands, but we don't know whether to expect love or hate. Life doesn't make sense, and it most especially doesn't make sense when the righteous get treated like the wicked and the wicked get treated like the righteous. Sometimes it doesn't pay off, and sometimes the good die young. And so he begins by saying there's a lot that we don't know, he concluded that way last week in chapter 8. He starts here by saying, we know we're in God's hands, but we, the way circumstances kind of work out, we don't know whether we're going to get love or get hate. So he moves on and he says, while there are indeed many things that we don't know, that we cannot know, there is one thing that we can know, and that is that death 
is a certainty. See, it gets better. Like the subpoints, they really flesh out this really encouraging topic about staring down death. He says there's many things that we cannot know, but death is a certainty. Look what he says in verses 2 and the beginning of verse 3. Everything is the same for everyone. There is one fate for the righteous and the wicked, for the good and for the bad, for the clean and for the unclean, for the one who sacrifices in worship and the one who does not sacrifice. As it is for the good, so it is for the sinner. As for the one who takes an oath, so for the one who fears an oath. There is, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun. There is one fate for everyone. Here's his point. Being a good boy or a good girl doesn't save you from death. You're still going to die. Morality is no safeguard against mortality. Good people die as well as wicked people. And he gives this whole, he gives six pairs of good and bad. The righteous and the wicked. The people who sacrifice, who give back to God, and the people who don't. The people who are truthful, they're willing to take an oath. And the people who are, won't take an oath because they don't want you calling them on the carpet. The worshiper and the non-worshiper. There is no advantage for the good you still die. And when you get to verse 3, Solomon just simply kind of throws his hands up and says, this is an evil, that there's one fate for everyone. Shouldn't there be some advantage for the people that follow God? We know that there is. Solomon lived before the cross. He goes on to say that while life can be joyful, there's no denying that death is sad. There's no denying that death is sad. Now, the, 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 the challenge with this is there are some people that drink a little too deeply from kind of platonic philosophy. They want to be like, like Plato, all mind and no heart. And therefore, if a Christian, we know that there's an afterlife, so if we grieve when someone dies, that is in some way bad. Baloney. Jesus, at the death of his friend Lazarus, weeps. Now, we could, we could have some good conversation talking about why did he weep, um, he's about to resurrect him, so he's not, not weeping because he's dead because he knows what he's about to do. But Jesus weeps at the death of a friend, and he says that the depth of our emotions as a human, we are to grieve, but we're not to grieve as those who have no hope. There's no denying that death is sad, and he talks about this in verses 4 through 6. Uh, listen to this. He says this, There's hope forever is, whoever is joined with the living since a live dog is better than a dead lion. Now, that's kind of a little Hebrew um, kind of aphorism that doesn't make sense to us. When you think of a dog, you think of Fido. That's not what the Old Testament talks about when they talk about a dog. Dogs were dirty. They were just one step up from like a, what we would say, a pig or a rat. They were scavengers. They were dirty. They were nasty. They were not pets that you buy sweaters for and sleep in bed with you, okay? Um, th- these... Th- What he's saying is that the lion is the king of the jungle, mighty and majestic, and a dead dog is better than a live lion. Meaning, being alive is better than being dead. For the living, verse 5, for the living, they know that they will die, but the dead, they don't know anything. There is no longer a reward for them because the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate, their envy have dissipated, and there is no longer a portion for them in all that is done under the sun. Uh, Here Solomon gives this really morbid catalog of everything that's wrong with death. He says, you don't know anything when you're dead. There's no more reward. Your memory is forgotten. All your passions that vivify you and give you strength, love, and even envy, they're gone. 
and there's no portion. This is, to be clear, a sub-Christian, not a Christian view of the afterlife. Solomon knows that there's something that happens when you die, but he doesn't have the revelation that comes in the New Testament. So he, where we know that Jesus is on the door, and Jesus is the door to what? Jesus is the door to a whole new room that we don't even know exists beyond this life. Solomon doesn't view the afterlife, doesn't view death as a door to the afterlife. He views death as a tomb. Now we know more because we have further revelation. Solomon's just saying what he knows. And that's why he can claim, make the claim about a live dog. Live dog being better than a dead lion. There was one day that uh, Charlie Brown decided to visit Snoopy. Snoopy was on his doghouse typing furiously on his typewriter his magnum opus. Snoopy wrote a book. Uh, many of you don't know that, but he, he wrote a book. Charlie, Charlie Brown was the first one to pick up his book. In the, um, the book was called The Theology of the Dog. So you kind of you know, get a little smirk on your face going, all right, Snoopy, <coughs> writing his book, The Theology of the Dog. And when Charlie Brown opened the book, there was really only one sentence to the book. You know what the sentence was? It was Ecclesiastes 9, 4. A live dog is better than a dead lion. And so Charlie Brown scratches his head and goes, what does it mean? And Snoopy goes, I don't know, but I agree with it. It's cute. It's wonderful. You know, hey, listen, something alive is better than something dead. I don't know what it means, but I a live dog versus a dead lion, but I agree. We can turn, when we talk about the sadness of death, we can turn to that other uh, preeminent uh, Christian philosopher, Calvin, and his counterpart, Hobbes. And um, my, favorite, my favorite cartoon. And um, Calvin is a precocious little boy, and his um, stuffed animal uh, tiger is Hobbes. And um, Calvin goes through life, kind of experiencing life vicariously as a little boy. Everything is really wonderfully awesome or terribly bad. There's very little in between. And this is one of the terribly bad things that happens to Calvin. Calvin goes to a playground, <coughs> and on that playground he finds a very tiny, emaciated, and obviously sick baby raccoon. This is where you're supposed to go, aww. And so what does a precocious little boy do when he finds a baby, cute, cuddly baby raccoon? He puts him in a box, and he brings him home. Um, I brought all kinds of things home to my mom. Most of them were of the slithering variety, and I got in so much trouble for that. I didn't try to bring home something that was almost dead. Um, but he brings home this raccoon. And, and Calvin is in angst because he's just so cute. And it's, it's very obvious from mom that um, baby abandons raccoon, uh, the clock is ticking. And so Calvin wants to know that his mom will promise to do everything she can to nurse that baby raccoon back to life. And if you're a mom or a dad and your five or six-year-old brings something like this home, you know you're going to give it the old college try. You might know b before you even start anything that this is not going to end up well, but you're going to try because you know that your little one's heart is so wrapped up in this. And so mom tries to prepare Calvin for what inevitably will happen as he goes to bed and she says, Calvin, it just doesn't look very good. The scene transitions to the next morning where Calvin bounds out of bed and heads down to the kitchen. And as he walks into the kitchen, his mom has that face. You know what the face is? It's the face of, man, I've got to tell you something and I don't want to tell you. Cute, 
cuddly little baby raccoon has died. And Calvin makes the statement that I think captures the preeminence of the sadness of death. He goes, baby raccoon, I didn't even know you yesterday morning, and now you're already gone. profundity to that that this this creature that he didn't even know when he got up uh, from bed the earlier morning had so captured his heart by midday and now he is racked by grief at the departure of this thing this creature not even something that is fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of god death is sad so hobbes the precocious tiger, tries to cheer Calvin up. Calvin is despondent and wants to know, what is the meaning of life? And Hobbes goes, um, mm, well, there's seafood, as his stomach grumbled because Calvin had not fed him. And so his Hobbes perspective was, hey, death is a reality. Let's eat. Let's get our grub on. And there's actually something really good about that that we'll see as the Bible continues. Here's, here's the bad thing about all of this. We have to stare down death. We know that it's a certainty. We know that it's sad. Here's something that you might not recognize. If you're going to be wise, you will ultimately recognize that death is deserved. Death is deserved. The second part of verse 3, <clears throat> the Bible says this, In addition, the hearts of people are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that, they go to the dead. Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. God says to Adam and Eve, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. When the Lord saw that man's wickedness was widespread on the earth, and that every scheme his mind thought of was nothing but evil all the time, The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The forerunner to that cute little kid story about Noah and his floating zoo, which actually is a picture of judgment for the rebellion that hides in man's heart. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 is a verse that you should know. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Friend, our biggest problem is not that we die. It's the reason that we die. Because we've rejected God and we've turned our back on Him and said that we can live our life better. Sins are not simply these outward actions. Uh, Winthrop students, you got drunk at homecoming this weekend. That is a sin, but the reason you did it is because you are a sinner. Your problem is not external. Your problem is internal. It's in your very heart. It's in your DNA. It's at the core of your being. And it's true for every single one of us, not just foolish freshmen in college. It's true for all that our problem is we deserve death because we've rejected God. And if we're going to live wisely, we have to look and understand that part of life on this side of the garden is inheriting a very painful curse. And that's that we deserve this death that is such a terrible, terrible enemy. He moves on in his second point to say that a life of wisdom requires us to acknowledge the adversity of life. Life is hard. 
It's not always easy. It's not hard all the time. But just when you think it's going to be a great week, you're like, you've had an awesome weekend. Your batteries are charged, and you are ready to go to work on Monday and take care of business. And then Monday gets here. And it is a no good, terrible, really rotten week. And like, you know, if Monday goes bad, like you think the rest of your week is just going to be terrible. Like if Monday's good, the week still has a chance. But like if Monday's bad, you're like, oh man, I got Tuesday, and then after that is Wednesday, and then Thursday, and then Friday, and then maybe the weekend will be good again. A life of wisdom requires us to acknowledge the adversity of life. Look at verses 11 and 12. <coughs> Solomon says, again, I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong or bread to the wise or riches to the discerning or favor to the skillful. Rather, time and chance happen to all of them. For man certainly does not know his time, like fish caught in a cruel net or like birds caught in a trap. So people are trapped in an evil time as it suddenly springs or falls upon them. He makes two points. Number one is that life is often though not always, unpredictable. Life is often, not all the time, unpredictable. You think that if there are certain physical advantages that you have, that you will win. For example, Solomon says, who are you going to bet on in a foot race? Let me just assume that you're going to figure out who the fastest guy is. You're going to get the the, the wiry, skinny fella, not the guy that looks like he's going to have a heart attack after he runs three steps, right? I lived in Kentucky for 17 years. They have a little pony show called the Kentucky Derby. No one ever bets on a three-legged horse. You just don't do it. You figure out which one has the best odds of winning, and if you're a betting man, you put your money on the winner, the projected one that you think has a chance to win, Not not the horse without four legs, and yet he says the race is not to the swift. He says the battle isn't to the strong. All right, guys, fantasy football, who do you draft? The guy that scores the most touchdowns. You want the stud on your team, and if we're going to battle, you want want the biggest, strongest guy. You know who you want on your team? You want Goliath. Oh, wait, you didn't want David? The Bible says the battle's not always to the strong. So it doesn't matter what physical advantages you have. They don't often pay off. Life is unpredictable. So you think, hey, it's not about brawn. It's about brains. So maybe intellectual advantages are what pay off. Well, look at what he says. He says it's not, it doesn't, happen, it doesn't turn out well for the wise. Verse uh, 11. I'm sorry, ver- yeah. Verse 11. The wise don't necessarily get bread. Uh, the discerning, the wise don't necessarily get riches. Um, you know, we will always pay NFL players more than we pay school teachers. Figure that out. Don't make any sense. Don't make any sense. Uh, doesn't matter if you're discerning. It doesn't matter if you're wise. It doesn't mean you're going to be rich. It doesn't matter if you're skillful. It doesn't mean you'll have favor. It's just not going to happen. So these intellectual advantages of wisdom, richness, discerning, skill, it doesn't happen. His point in all of this, in verse 12, he uses these two analogies of a net and a snare. And if the fish and the bird knew that those things were there, they would, they would swim or peck in different places. They would go. And the point that he's making is that wisdom teaches us to treasure our time 
to treasure our time and to expect accidents. To expect accidents. These pictures of the net and of the trap picture the suddenness of a reversal. So you go to bed Sunday night thinking it's going to be a wonderful week. You wake up on Monday and it's ugh, back in the grind. It's terrible. It happens quickly. And it's death is quick. Uh, this week, we've had people in our congregation that have had to bury loved ones. Jerry Allen had a 29-year-old grandson-in-law had a massive heart attack in bed last Friday night, Saturday morning. He died, 29 years old. Winky Spate buried her brother-in-law after a long and terrible illness. And so whether it's a long and terrible illness or something that happens suddenly, the Bible says to treasure our time and to expect accidents. It uses a bad term in verse... Um, Oh, let me see where it is. The end of verse 11. It says, you know, in, uh, everything being reversed in all of these um, sets, the, it says rather time and chance happen, all of them. There is no such thing as chance. There's, no, there's not chance. There's not fate. Verse 1 says our life is in whose hands? Fate's hands. Chance's hands. No, our life is in God's hands. There's no such thing as chance. So when he says chance in time, he's really talking about there are accidents that happen. There are things that we can't explain that just happen. You love that new truck that you've just bought. Even though the second you drive it off the lot, it's worth about 10% less than you just paid for it. But no matter how much you treasure it, it doesn't mean that it's going to stay dent-free for a week. And how frustrating is that? That accidents can happen, and from a financial perspective, you're now frustrated because something you didn't anticipate happened, it's the same with life. It's the same with life. He comes home and he wraps it all up. He tells us that we have to learn to stare down death. We have to learn to acknowledge the adversity in life. And you sit there and you go, oh, this is such a frustrating topic. Believe me, I had to prepare this. I had to think about, where's the hope in all of this? And it's in, it's in the three verses, uh, four verses that we skipped over. We dealt with verses 1 through 6 in our first point. We dealt with verses 11 and 12 in our second point, And we happen to skip over verses 7 through 10. And here's what wisdom tells us. Wisdom tells us, seize the day. Seize the day. Because it might be all that you have. <coughs> seize the day because it might be all that you have. And it doesn't say this in a fatalistic way. It says, enjoy life to the full because God has given it to you as a gift. Listen to verses 7 through 10. Go! Eat your bread with pleasure and drink your wine with a cheerful heart for God has already accepted your works. Let your clothes be white all the time and never let oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife you love all the days of your fleeting life, which has been given to you under the sun all your fleeting days. For that is your portion in life and in your struggle under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do with all your strength, because there is no work, planning, knowledge, or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. This sounds just a tad bit familiar. If you've processed through the message of the book of Ecclesiastes, this is the sixth time that Solomon has given us this admonition, this exhortation, this command to enjoy, to seize the day. In chapter 2 he did it, twice in chapter 3, in chapter 5, in chapter 8, and yet one more time in chapter 11 when we get there next year. 
He will tell us, seize the day. Enjoy the life that God has given you. It is a familiar refrain, but it is here enhanced with the most detail, and it is much more emphatic. Because death is certain, and because life is unpredictable, enjoy, don't waste a day. Time is too precious. And he says, go, now. Don't wait for the invitation. Don't wait for the music to play. Get up and go and enjoy life. God has given it to you now. Don't wait. And we think that when I hit 65, I'll be able to retire and everything will be good. No, you won't, because you're still going to want the same toys that you have with a full-time salary, and now you're going to have a job to buy toys. Enjoy life now. And Solomon makes this emphatic with five commands. Five commands found in verses 7 through 10. Number one, he says, go. Go. There's a sense of urgency to this. Don't wait to enjoy the life that God has given you. Enjoy it now. Number two, he says, eat. Eat your bread with pleasure. So when you, when you, um, this is an amazing thing. God, God has given you the ability, God has given you the necessity for food, okay? Um, anybody's stomach grumbling now? Do you have breakfast? No? Okay. Do you have breakfast back here? Yeah, your stomach's still grumbling. Uh, I'm, I'm a little hungry too. So like we can't go really long without food. So God has given us the biological necessity to need food. Do you know what else God has done? He's given us the ability to enjoy it. Like if you had a meal that you go, oh, that was good. Think about this for a second. Like if I was God, if I was God, and y'all weren't good boys and girls, you know what I would do? I would make everything taste like tofu. I mean, listen, the word even sounds like a curse. Tofu. You got to like wrinkle up your face to say it. What does it taste like? I don't know, boogers or something like that. Tofu! Ah! I would rather have a head cold than eat eat tofu. God could make everything taste like tofu. But instead, he's given you the ability not only to need it, but to enjoy it. Why? Why? Like, you don't, biologically, you don't need to enjoy it for it to do you good, right? Like, it's just, it's a thing. It's a gift that God has given. He says, drink. Drink your wine with cheerfulness. The Bible says, whatever God has given as a blessing, don't despise it. Don't despise it. Paul gets into this in 2 Timothy, where people have all these rules about asceticism. Don't do this. Don't eat this. Don't drink this. And he's not saying you have to drink wine. For some of you, it's tea. I am, I am convinced if we poked a needle in your veins, it would come out brown, okay? Now listen, you drink too much tea, especially sweet tea, you're going to end up with diabetes, especially if you drink like the sweet tea at McDonald's. It's like 50 pounds of sugar in every cup. So whether it's tea, whether it's coffee, his point is drink it, enjoy it with a cheerful heart. Don't abuse God's gifts. Again, God has given it for your enjoyment, but don't enjoy it to a point where it becomes a sin. That's a problem. He says, so eat, go, eat, drink. He says, enjoy the wife that you love. I think this generation, broadly speaking, gets it maybe more than older generations. I don't know. I don't know. I think you guys need to hear the warning about death being a certainty more than people in our first service do. They know it. They've buried a lot of their friends. 
you haven't? And you think that it's distant. I, I do sometimes hear from people from my grandparents' generation that um, marriage is a wonderful thing, but sometimes there's not a lot of warmth and intimacy. It, it's, it's a contract. And let me say that I think Ecclesiastes is saying here that marriage is to be an enduring institution, but marriage is not merely something that you endure. Marriage is something that you are to enjoy. God commands it. And you think about here where he is giving these commands, he is commanding you to enjoy married life. How awesome is that? The Bible is not into this asceticism. I don't know if anyone has ever heard of the word of Simeon Stilettis. Uh, Anyone ever heard of Simeon Stilettis? He was a guy that was so focused on God and he wanted to prove that he was so removed from the pleasures of the world that he went out into the desert. He found a rock column and he sat on top of it for 50 years and people would do a little pulley system to get food and drink to him because he didn't want to be associated with the pleasures of the world. Applaudable ambition. He wanted to show his devotion to God. And for that, we can all say, Simeon, way to go. That's weird, but way to go. He, he tried to live differently, and nobody cared because he lived out by himself out in the desert. The, the Bible doesn't call us to abnegation of all of these things that God has given us to enjoy. He's not saying you need to just eat bread and water. God has given us the capacity to enjoy life, and so live your life differently among people so that they ask you, why are you so weird? Don't just go out in the desert and sit on a pile of rocks You're not proving anything to anybody because you've removed yourself from the society that we are supposed to penetrate like leaven. We're supposed to be the yeast that infects our culture. So he says, go, eat, drink, enjoy. And then he says some really amazing things about an ethic for our working. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your strength. It echoes the command that God gives in Genesis 1, that he created Adam to work in the garden before there was sin. Some people think that work is a result of the curse. No, work is just hard now because of the curse, but work the command to work was given before Adam and Eve ever sinned. I love this because the Bible talks about this in multiple places. Listen to Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. Young people, listen to this because it, it, it says that a, your Christian commitment is to some degree measured by your work ethic. Like how you work reflects what you believe about God. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, taking out the trash, um, flipping hamburgers, selling bolts, making websites, whatever it is that you do, do it enthusiastically as something done for the Lord and not for men. You know who your boss is? The Lord Jesus Christ. And every article that your hand touches should be an, uh, an act of worship, giving your best to God. Solomon has told us, hey, eat, drink, enjoy, do. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, he says this, therefore, listen to this, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, eat, drink, do. You think maybe Paul was thinking about Ecclesiastes chapter 9? Whatever you do, whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do everything for God's glory. There's a way to do even the most insignificant things in life, like eating and drinking to the glory of God. I love how he concludes 
with this deep theology of marriage and theology of work that is so helpful for us. Well, let me bring this home. For those of us who are in Christ, we, we, need, to, we need to acknowledge these realities about life. Becoming a Christian is not necessarily a bed of roses. There is no necessary advantage that we have in this life. Following Christ does not exempt us from hardship. It doesn't give us an escape clause from death. But we know that death is not the end. We're not like the philosopher that says, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's fatalism. We don't, we don't eat and drink and enjoy life because that's all there is. The reason we do that is we want to honor the one who has given us these gifts. We're not trying to get the most out of life because after that there's nothing. We do it because God has issued us a command to enjoy life. And if we want to honor the giver, we will take seriously his command. God is mentioned twice in this passage. It's really difficult because next week God is not mentioned at all. And it's the most convoluted passage in all of Ecclesiastes. It's, it's hard. But here God is mentioned twice. He's mentioned in verse 1 when it said that our life is in his hands. And then it's mentioned again in verse 7 where we're told to enjoy because we've been accepted by God. God's already accepted our work is what it says literally. Now that raises a question for us because we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace. So what is our work? Our work is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not a work. But it's the only thing that we can do. We can't do anything else to justify ourselves. And so if we have placed our faith in Christ, the Bible says God has accepted, that's, that's, that's your work. That's all you can do. All you can do, you can't do anything. All you can do is believe. And if you have placed your faith in Christ, God has accepted you, so enjoy life without reservation. That's an amazing thing. I close with John chapter 6, verses 47 through 51. Jesus says this, I assure you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. But this is the bread. I am the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever the bread that I will give you for the life of the world is my flesh. So the question for you this morning is the question of the old psalmist. Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? There is no life of wisdom without Jesus. There is no friend who sticks closer than a brother. There is no shepherd who walks with you for the, through the valley of the shadow of death without Jesus. This, my flesh, is the bread of life. If we want a life of wisdom, we will dine at the table that the Lord Jesus Christ has set for us because everything else, my friends, is foolishness. Let's pray with me, please. Father, help us to reject our own wisdom. Help us to reject the wisdom that the world offers us. Help us not to be wise in our own eyes, but to understand that you have um, not just told us how to get right in life, you have given us instructions on how to navigate the twists and turns of a world that is wicked. There will be bad things that will happen to people in this room this week 
And Father, you tell us uh, how to live wisely so when those things happen, instead of turning away from you, we can turn to you. And we can trust you more. And Father, we need that. I pray today that if there is one here who has not tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that today can be the day that he turns. Turns from himself, turns from her sin, turns towards you and finds life in your name. Father, for those of us that know you, love you, may we serve you well. May we live wisely. May we walk that narrow path and be an example to those who uh, walk alongside us. In Jesus' name we pray.